0: If people don't know, Bill of Fletcher is one of the most significant black freedom fighters in this era, and his era spans the 20th century into the 21st. When I talk about you, Bill, I always mention that you were president of the Trans-Africa Forum, which was mm-hmm. one of the most significant anti-apartheid organizations in the United States during the era of apartheid. So whenever we can get Uh, Bill Fletcher to come to our capital region. We're very happy about that. And Bill and I worked together in the Ukraine Solidarity Network, which is a national organization. So we got to be reunited after having known each other for a number of years. So that was something that we really wanted to have and be able to share.
1: For you, Bill, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about why the Ukraine Solidarity Movement was important to you and how you think it fits in with your other work?
2: The Ukraine work is important on multiple levels, not the least of which is that the pretext used by the Russians to invade Ukraine really mirrored those that were used by George W. Bush to invade Iraq. And that was one of the things that struck me immediately. Second was that Ukraine has a colonial heritage vis-a-vis Russia. That is, it was dominated as, in effect, a colony by Russia for uh, centuries. And even though, ironically, the Russian state originated in what is now Ukraine, Russia came to dominate as part of the building of its empire. It came to dominate Ukraine. So in that sense, Ukraine shares much with most of the rest of the world, which has been victims of colonialism. And so that also affected me. The third thing is my great fear of the Putin regime specifically and the growth of global right-wing authoritarianism generally. And the, when you look at the relationship that Putin has had with Trump, for example, and growing segments of the Republican Party, You see that much like in the pre-World War II situation in the United States, there are segments of the political right that are more than willing to not only give a pass, but to advocate in favor of right-wing authoritarian movements in Europe and in some other parts of the world. And I think that that's what we're seeing.
1: My next question is about the post October 7th environment. There's so many parallels here, um, issues of occupation, but also the way that these have created some real splits in um, the American public, although it seems from a distance at least that this country comes down on the opposite side on these two conflicts.
2: The United States does not have a very good history of being on the right side of this, but every so often, they are, like in World War II. In the lead up to World War II, there were movements that were saying to the United States government that with the advance of fascism, the United States needed to take a clear, unequivocal stance. And in, uh, when the Spanish Civil War erupted in 1936, these movements insisted that the United States should militarily support the Spanish government against the fascist uprising and a direct intervention by the Germans and Italians. That was the correct stance. So one general principle is that when there is aggression, we should be on the right side of history.
1: There's obviously so much here and that's okay because if people want to go deeper in this issue, you guys will be at the Albany public library at 11 a.m. on Saturday
0: the Washington Avenue branch, what is referred to as the main branch.
1: You'll be able to go much deeper into these issues. Then if I could just have one last question, you both have an incredibly rich, long history specifically in speaking to the issues of oppressed people. So can you boil down, like, how do you determine in these type of situations who are the oppressed people? Cause everybody has sort of mastered some of this language in both directions and, Well, I think what's
0: really uh, important about the work that we've been doing on Ukraine is that we listen to the people who actually are dealing with the situation on the ground, from the bottom up. And that's another way to think about political work, instead of looking at what governments are doing and from the top down, because it seems like governments tend to make uh, big mistakes. The United States' relationship to Ukraine and to Israel and Palestine and uh, etc., and Russia, all of the, those countries that the United States is playing on the table with, it's consistent. It's consistent because the United States is looking out for what it sees as its capitalist interests, its economic interests, its power domination interest. They see themselves lining up against Russia so that Russia does not outdistance them in the race for world hegemony. And then as far as Israel is concerned, they're siding with the people who they see as having similar interests to theirs in that region, and that includes economic interests as well. So we listen to Ukrainians, we listen to Russian dissidents, we listen to Palestinians, and we listen to Israelis who oppose the occupation. So that's what we do.
2: Let me me add to that. See, I think this is why history is so important. And the problem is in the United States, we actively oppose history and we embrace myths. So that then leads people to start stories wherever they want to start the story because they don't feel bound to any real understanding of history. I mean, if you want to look at the current situation in the Middle East, you don't go back 2,000 years. That's a myth. You go back to the 1800s, and you start with the development of a Zionist movement in Europe that was in direct response to the absolute hatred that European Christians had had towards Jews since the Roman Empire. And you look at the Zionist movement as a movement that was providing a particular pro-imperial solution to how they perceived anti-Semitism playing out. And that solution necessitated aligning the Zionist movement with imperial power so the the root of this crisis does not start october 7th and that's the problem when you when you start the story midway and this is true if you're watching a film or reading a book you start the story in the middle you you can't figure out really what's going on and so for much of the u.s public what they're exposed to in the media is october 7th hamás committed a war crime in launching this attack and it's true. There was a war crime in attacking civilians. Not the military side, but simply, you know, going after civilians was a war crime by international law. No question about... It. Now, having said that, did that come out of nowhere? Did that just sort of pop up? No. It has to be understood in the context of Gaza being the largest open-air prison on this planet. But that has to be understood in terms of the implications from the 1967 war, which itself has to be understood from the implications of the 1984, 1948 war, which itself has to be understood from the implications of the way that the 1947 partition of Palestine was carried out without the input of Arabs. I mean, this is what I think people in the United States got to get. Arabs were not involved in dividing up of the pal- Palestine. It was carried out by Europeans. So when people wonder why the Palestinians are upset, I mean, they had a chance. Well, wait a minute now. This was done on their heads. It was done over them. So why shouldn't they be furious? So you can't look at what we're, going, what we're seeing right now in Gaza by just going back to October 7th. It's completely misleading. But see, it's the easy way. And the U.S. media, with all due respect, likes to hit the easy button. And therein lies the problem. So to understand, go with history.
1: Your quote that the U.S. embraces myth and ignores history is a a pull quote for sure. That's that's pretty powerful. Um, It's
2: not that it ignores history. It opposes history.
1: It opposes, that.
2: That's very important. That when things get things get in the way, as we see now in the debates around so-called critical race theory, when the facts get in the way of the myth, you get rid of the facts.